0: Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the weekly podcast in which I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. How are you? I hope you're all well. Last week, I told you about the live recording of Desert Island Dishes that I'm doing on the 2nd of February. And it's so exciting that so many of you are coming. There are, I think, literally two tickets left. And I would love for you to get them. All the details are in the show notes for today's episode and on my Instagram highlights. So just follow the link and get your hands on them. And I will see you there. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Robert Welch. They do the most brilliant cookware and the good news is that they have 20% off their Camden Cookware range at the moment until the end of January and they're offering Desert Island Dishes listeners an extra 10% off on top of that, which is a huge discount and all you have to do is use the code DISHES10, that's dishes and then the number 10 at checkout on robertwelch.com. I genuinely have pretty much the whole of their Camden cookware range, and it really is great. So thank you so much, Robert Welch. And if your pots and pans need a bit of a new year overhaul, now is the time to do it. Without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Ainsley Harriet. Ainsley is a chef, a TV presenter, a businessman, and a cookbook author. He's sold more than 2 million cookbooks worldwide, and he now has his own range of supermarket foods, including couscous, risotto, soups, and cereal bars. He won the heart of the nation during his time presenting Ready, Steady Cook, and became one of the most recognized TV personalities. He's back on our screens with a new series called Ainsley's Caribbean Kitchen, which is very exciting such as ainsley 's popularity that back in two thousand and fifteen there was a petition to get him on the new twenty pound note and it gained more than twenty five thousand signatures. Welcome Ainsley
1: thank you very much indeed <laughs> wow i 've been i 've been so excited about doing desert island dishes because uh, it really gives one an opportunity to talk. Talk passionately about something that you, you love doing, and ever since I was a little boy in the kitchen with my mum, like we are today in the kitchen, and it's uh, it's the heart of the home, isn't it?
0: Yeah, completely. Oh, Ainsley, honestly, I've been so excited to get you on, and I wondered, did you know about the banknote petition?
1: Um, I vaguely knew about it. You know, I, I've also got a fifteen-year-old son called Joe, and he's a uh, constantly saying to me dad have you seen this dad have you seen that (laughs) and uh you know they're really into what's happening on social media all the instagram stuff all the meme stuff you know which is just (laughs) extraordinary people say do you love it i'm saying knock yourself out enjoy (laughs) it
0: So Ainsley, you were born and raised in South London, where you still live. Your father was a very successful jazz pianist, and your mother was a nurse and a fantastic cook from the sounds of it. So let's talk about the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood.
1: Mm. Oh, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? That you suddenly sort of start thinking, what do we really look forward to? Well, every meal we looked forward to. We were in such a fortunate position unlike many children today who get home and you know mum and dad are both working there is so much more that we want in life now it appears that way anyway and the pressures of life and everything and you know uh we got home from school and i walked into that door and my mum was there and normally there was wonderful smells of food we had lots of rabbits and so there was a couple of rabbits running around so it sounds like i lived in a farm (laughs) i lived in the heart of south london (laughs) (laughs) but you know there there was always beautiful smells in the house and that was a result of my mum putting a lot of love and care into what she was doing most of all nourishing her family and in the best way possible in how she was taught to cook and my grandfather having been a a wonderful cook and still trying to find out when he was he cooked for one of the presidents at the white
0: house yeah he cooked for roosevelt
1: I i don't know it's roosevelt we kind of worked out that it was before roosevelt we started looking at all sorts of hoover we started looking at all sorts of people but we still haven't found out it was almost like uh they just didn't keep that information on file, which is a bit sad. Yeah. Because at the time of Obama being in power, I so wanted to be able to sort of relive those moments and say, I'm back at the White House. Yes. My grandfather was here you know, 70, 80 years ago, and I'm repeating that now and uh, really excited about it. But in answer to your question, um, you know, what food reminds me of my childhood? I think cornmeal porridge is one of those uh, that remind me of my childhood because everyone likes a bit of porridge before they go to school. But one of the things I remember my mum is putting the cornmeal and the milk and the nutmeg and uh, a few of the other sort of spices. I don't know whether there was a little bit of uh, allspice in there. I'm not quite sure, but she used to spice it up and uh, leave it and then in the morning just come and turn it on on a very gentle heat and stir it very, very slowly. And uh, for anybody who has experienced that, it's 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 kind of... It's another sort of aromatic kind of one of those smells that you go ah, oh, cornmeal porridge, you know, it's just, and I used to put evaporated milk on it. You oh, know, right? now you're
0: talking, that sounds uh, more
1: good. More nutmeg, bub.
0: So so you'd have the cornmeal instead of oats?
1: Yeah, instead of oats, we'd have cornmeal porridge before we went to school, which I absolutely loved. Not every morning, you know, sometimes it did get a little bit frantic. And later on, I remember my mum going back to work at St. James's Hospital, when we were a little bit older, and uh, we had to sort of fend for ourselves. And that's when I kind of recognized the fact that I liked wholemeal porridge because I just knew how to do it. Yes. <laughs> it's almost one of those things that instantly you put that there, that there, that there, and you know it's going to work. I did the inevitable butterfly cakes, you know, making my little sort of cakes and sort of cutting the top off and putting a little bit of butter icing in it and putting the, the little, uh, you know, Wings back inside. I I did stuff like that, but real taste, real cooking. I think sometimes we forget baking is a lovely way. Anybody who wants to start cooking, baking is a wonderful way to begin because it is truly rewarding. You know, you're putting something in which doesn't look like anything, and then it comes out either as a beautiful loaf of bread or was a beautiful sponge cake or something like yeah. that. It's almost like scientifically magical, if you know. Yeah,
0: it's completely magical. And mm. discovering that as a child, I mean, there is nothing more exciting. Mm. I read a piece from you where you said, and this is a quote from you, my mom cooked as a way of showing love. I remember hearing guests praising her food. And it dawned on me that this was a very simple way of making people happy. And I thought that was such a lovely way to look at cooking. It's not just something that we sort of have to do. But every time you do it, it is. Is an act of love and as you say it's a surefire way to make people happy but it's also not selfless is it because you get so much pleasure out of cooking for other people immense
1: immense pleasure you know we're talking today not enough uh, time spent with families around tables and stuff but when you do have that opportunity and you cook for your loved ones and even your extended family or your friends people that you really care about and you all sit around eating I don't think there's any greater pleasure quite honestly. I think it's just lovely to look at each other, and and there's a there's a feeling of real togetherness. You know, I had my uh, daughter and her boyfriend here at the weekend, and she was only popping over to watch a bit of football, all Arsenal fans, and then uh, suddenly she said, oh, Tristan's coming over. That's great. And I just cooked beautiful lamb stew, root vegetables, and everything else, and taters, and parsley. Just It was quite simple, after my sort of Caribbean, sort of spicy, spicy um, <laughs> connection for... Uh, weeks and weeks on end it's kind of really nice just to do something as simple as that yeah. we had such a lovely time
0: lucky old Tristan uh, I <laughs> what, a
1: couple of movies Whoa, hey.
0: <laughs> and I read that it's been really important to you to instill a love of cooking in your children is that something that they do share with you
1: yeah absolutely they uh, are they good cooks um okay you know, I think it's really difficult when you get a good cook in the family because... Uh, They've
0: got a lot to live up to. Ain't I know.
1: <laughs> every every person who cooks, whether they're cooks professionally at work or great cooks at home, mums, dads, whoever it is, we all know what that's like. Uh, having your children around the kitchen, great when they're young, showing them how to make pizzas, put this top and everything else. But sometimes it's... Just knocking it out. Let's get this meal together. And love still goes into it, but it's just get it together. Children have a tendency, especially when they get to teenagers, of half chopping something, then walking away. <laughs> you know, I've got a message. No, I'm um, sure, I,
0: I'm sure <laughs> I never did that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I think I've installed the the love of food. And whether they're dining out, whether they're ordering in, they know what good food tastes like or should taste like. And I think that is uh, that's something that we have got better and better at in this country. Now we are so much more aware and so much more of a, yeah, as I say, aware of, of food. Most people go out now. We we know what a Jew is, you know yeah. what I mean? And little things like that. You don't look at a menu and get embarrassed. You actually pick it up and think, Oh, that sounds lovely. I'm going to have that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It gives us that, 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 that sense of connecting.
0: Also, it sounds so silly, but in order to learn how to be a good cook, you do have to learn how to be a good eater. Like, yeah. you have to eat as many different things as oh, you can. And absolutely. Open all, your eyes, open yeah. your
1: taste buds. More importantly, open your mouth to new flavors. Yeah, you, I mean,
0: that's the excuse I use anyway. Yeah, well, it's, it's, not, it's, not for, it's, not, it's not
1: for everybody. You know, not everybody has that ability to, how can one say, not everybody has that ability to try new things. Uh, you know, they do look at stuff and turn their nose up.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the second Desert Island dish. What was the first dish that you learned to cook?
1: Um, really, learn to cook. I think that is, again, a hard one. I think it's probably to understand, um, instead of, so what did you learn to cook? Understand how to cook. Yeah. And understand, you know, that flame goes up and down. I know some people have induction heat and stuff like that. The same thing applies. You get a low heat, you get a high heat. And to really begin to understand that, and to trust your nose. My mum always used to say, "Your nose will tell you everything. You know when something is cooked from your nose." Um, she had this wonderful way to of taking off the lid, grabbing the steam with her hand, and smelling it, and it was like what was she doing? And I found myself doing it yeah, later. Michael, it was that. extraordinary. It was just kind of off at the lid, grab the steam and have a little bit of a smell, not put your nose over it, you know, burn your, your nozzle, nothing like that. Just, <laughs> it's almost like grabbing it and just smelling it. So I, I learned how to cook.
0: But that's amazing, isn't it? Because that's not anything that you can learn through books. That's in, intuitive cooking. Uh, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Putting the oven on, getting the right temperature. She baked all the time. We always had sort of hard dough bread and stuff being baked, especially at weekends when she had that extra time. And were you interested? I was interested. I loved, as I pointed out before, you mentioned before about just seeing people's reaction when they tasted my mum's food and say, oh, Peppy, this is this is wonderful. You know, what a way to reach out to people. What a way of bringing people together. And I think that's always been with me. And I, I loved it. And, uh, it's no coincidence that my sister was a uh, home economics teacher, now retired, and my brother, who got married at 21, so his girls are really getting on now. He's in his 60s. but
0: They'll love it. Yeah, They'll uh, love hearing that. I know, I know. <laughs>
1: I know. Your dad's old. I'm sorry. <laughs> Heidi and Hattie, I'm sorry, darling. Um, <clears throat> but you know what? He's He's a fantastic cook, too. He gets his wife's Persian. And when they get together and cook food, it's, you know, it's a masterclass. It really is. They have the patience. And I think that's what our mum taught us, is patience. So the first thing that I learned to cook, it's nice when people reflect on it, isn't it? I'd probably say an omelette.
0: Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. Because that's actually something, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But actually to make a really good omelette as a technique. Oh
1: yeah. And again, all about heat, all about putting it in the pan, all about beating up those eggs. And the simplicity of it, Mm. you know, sometimes, you know, that first thing that you cook by yourself, not mum saying, now put that in there and stir this or dad saying, okay combine that now. No, that is something that you do yourself. You take the eggs, you crack them, you open them, you know, take out the shell, (laughs) (laughs) a little bit of seasoning, you know, whip it up get the pan nice and hot before you add a little knob of butter or a touch of oil sometimes to help that, you know, that butter doesn't burn because it's hard to control that heat in with it. And just keep bringing those curds in. just kind of stir them towards the middle and not too quick, just in them very, very gently in, folding them over and you can put ham cheese, you can put what you want in there, spinach, artichoke, anything. But for me, it was just the egg, mm. just the simplicity of it. And I thought, yeah, and the proud look on my mum's face when, you know, I did something like that. Just a smile, but nothing much. No heavy patting or what, just a smile. And that was it, you know. Yeah. We all know what that's.
0: Totally about. worth it. So you went and trained at Westminster College. And then your cooking career really began when you got an apprenticeship at an East End restaurant at the age of just 16. Tell us a bit more about that, because that's a really young age to know what you wanted to do.
1: Well, it wasn't so much... a. Uh, an East End restaurant, what happened is I used to work for an agency called um, Chapman's in Webbs Road. And uh you'd have to be of at least 40 odd to remember Chapman's because it's a long time gone now. It was a catering agency that enabled you to, you know, go and get your 25p an hour and stuff like that. Okay. And I was actually in the middle of the, my holidays and I went to this kitchen and the woman said, oh, she said, you're quite good at cooking instead of washing up because we just wanted money to go and buy our Ben Sherman shirts or whatever <laughs> our brogues and to look absolutely cool or get to contact and dance, you know. And um, to have someone give you that kind of green light that you're okay at doing something Someone to trust you was a big, big step. I still had to go back to school. I was still in the middle of doing my exams, and it wasn't until 17 that I got my first professional job at Verry's Restaurant in Regent Street. Sadly gone now, but used to be frequented, ironically, considering the business I'm in, by a load of people that were in... To management, TV management, and stage management. Oh, really? Like that. Yeah. So that that's really interesting because you know I used to go into the restaurant and see how the carving chef did it and see these people and everyone was quite flamboyant and I felt very comfortable, perhaps because my <laughs> dad was in showbiz, you know. So
0: yeah. Yeah. And you really worked your way up. You worked in so many different restaurants. It's a really impressive list the Dorchester, Browns, the Hilton, the Westbury, Cafe Pelican, Quaglinos. And after years of hard work in the kitchen, you became head chef at Lord's Cricket Ground. Mm. That must have been a really exciting time.
1: But it was, but it wasn't directly, it wasn't like I was completely in charge of running Lord's. I was in charge of running the long room. Yeah. And Nick Nagarat, the executive chef, put me in charge of running the long room, which. I did for many years and I made many friends down there. I still get some Christmas cards from some of those old members. A big cricket fan because my cousin Jeffrey Dejon was uh, used to play for the West Indies. He was the wicket keeper for oh, the West right. Indies. So uh but that was much, much later on. In those early days, we used to have some of the uh, cricketers come to our house in South London, Hendricks Avenue, made by all my friends very, very jealous, not yeah. so happy. <laughs> oh Clive Lloyd's coming to my house and <laughs> It was it was fantastic. And, you know, um, eating my mum's food because of the connections that everybody had. So I absolutely loved my time at Lord. But I think more importantly, it was the camaraderie of the people and meeting people out there and realizing the value of feeding people who it's a first connection I had uh, visually and physically with people. Mm. When you're cooking for someone and you're looking at them and they're eating your food and they can tell you whether they're going to like it or not, not buying something and going away I need to get around the corner and think, I ain't going there again. They were there all day. They were going to come back. They're probably there for breakfast. They're going to come back for lunch, afternoon tea, and who knows what a little bit something later on too. Yeah. Fantastic. And over a five day period too. Uh, test. Did last a bit longer in so you
0: areas. were actually cooking for the teams
1: uh, sometimes for the team okay I remember uh, Michael Gatting sorry I remember Michael Gatting coming round. I still see Michael Gatting because I'm very much part of the Lord's Taverners. as I go along to various events and I see Mike there and um, he always used to love my beef back oh, but- gooch gooch uh, many a times I think after eating one of my beef baps with horseradish, <laughs> lashing to horseradish, went out and made a century for England.
0: Well, that's a claim to fame. I know.
1: I think the very first Australian that I had was Bill Laurie, who was a uh, Australian cricket captain. He liked my beef bap. He said, uh, yeah, you did really well, mate.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And being a head chef, it, it must be so different because it comes with a lot of extra responsibility, but then I guess it also comes with a chance for you to put your own mark on things. Was it something that you'd been working towards for a while? Like, was being a head chef the end goal?
1: I think you have to be careful when you do want to become a head chef, especially around about that time, because head chefs, you had less and less time with the food cooking the food you know you are you are someone to make decisions someone who wrote a menu fine and made sure that the kitchen was in profit you know It's not always the best job to have. You know, I've got a a mate who is a a vice principal at Geelong Grammar School, and he said he loves it because he still gets to teach a bit. If he was principal, he'd be out there promoting the school the whole time. Yeah,
0: it's sort of the higher up you get, the less you do the thing that you are actually there there to to do. do. Yeah, it's bizarre, Um, isn't it? Some
1: of them are great. Some of them remain in their kitchen and uh, and do it. But, uh, you know, I haven't got a restaurant now. I kind of miss the camaraderie. It's been a while now since I've been in a restaurant. But having said that, I do believe that you need a lot of energy to yeah. be able to keep that focus and everything going. And I suddenly got to that, say, late 50s, now early 60s. And I just, I love it. I still love cooking for people. I still love people around my dining room table and eating with them. But, you know, that being in a restaurant and cooking every day, it, it's jolly hard work. Yeah. Wonderfully satisfying.
0: Yeah let 's talk about the third desert island dish, and that's the best dish you've ever eaten.
1: Mm, now you know uh that's you know such a difficult one to sort of say that is the best thing that i've ever eaten because quite often the best things that i'd ever eaten came out of my mother's hands, you know, or came out of one of the pots on the stove that my mother had prepared it in because it's homely it 's warm. It brings a, gr- a great sense of belongingness. You know, you feel, you feel whole as a person. We all go home and have that connection with, you know, mum's Sunday roast or the wonderful pudding or whatever it can be. It doesn't have to be mum. It could be dad too. But, uh.
0: So do you think it was something that she
1: made that- Oh, was probably my mum's red pea stew Ooh. and dumplings? And, Ooh. you know, I have said this before in uh, interviews, but, and one of the reasons is, it's what I've just explained, it was so warming. It was so satisfying. It brought back wonderful memories of families togetherness, uncles and aunts, and who have long since passed around the table. It was a wonderful connection. Yes, I go out and eat in some lovely restaurants, but they're constantly changing. Food just evolves. You know, what, what's the next trend? What's the next trends That is not a trend. That is a, a food that is, has its identity. That has its soul and, and gives me immense satisfaction when I think yeah. about it.
0: Isn't that amazing? Like how happy she would be to know that of all the things you've ever eaten, that is your answer. Like I think that's what we should all be aiming for. I know. I know. To reverse that question, I read that when you were in Japan, you ate raw chicken and cow womb. And I wondered, how was that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The raw chicken, I think that uh, especially doing the street food series was which was a remarkable experience. Again, um, everything I seem to do in my life, um, it's just been, you know, it's something new and something that I hope to bring to the viewer, to the listener, whoever it is, is that experience I have and eating raw chicken. People say it's deadly, but they did so much of it. And looking at these artists, the place wasn't particularly refined either, but, I've been in many kitchens that are not looking refined. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen chefs turning out some amazing food. you know what I mean? And this is all w- w- globally too. To eat the raw chicken, I was, I was quite amazed, very tender, very soft. And, you know, it's all about how the chicken is reared, isn't it? And I think that is the absolute key. You know, people used to turn their nose up at pork before. It's one of the cleanest animals now. You get the most wonderful flavors. So I think uh, that was uh, pretty amazing and I, I i was quietly surprised you know and uh, <laughs> you know it was more these look of shock horror on the cameraman and soundsman's faces when i put that meat into my mouth oh, you my know? Goodness. and they expect me to sort of fall over you know <laughs> fall on the floor and pass out or sort of start having some sort of choking fit or something delicious <laughs> and uh, what was the other
0: thing the the cow, cow the cow womb
1: yeah um the cow womb I don't know if people know or if they saw the series, but you know, out in Japan, because the when the Koreans came over, when they had finished with cleaning the cow and taking all the various bits of meat and everything, they gave them what was left over, and this is where this all comes from. All of those kind of um, horrible, awfully bits and bits of neck and stuff that. You know everyone thinks it's absolute rubbish. They found a way with it because mm. that's where they were going to get their protein that's where they were going to get their nutrients from. When you taste it again, you know they found a way of curing it it's almost like when you taste a bit a bit of squid and you score it the right way, and then you cook it on the grill, wonderfully tender, yeah, score it the wrong way, cook it on the grill or overcook it tough as old boots yeah you know so So it was like that they found a way and it was really really interesting and i think that um i think that people should try it before you criticize it yes there is that but you know (laughs) if you consider that they say in uh, 50 years time most of our protein will be coming from bugs yes
0: i know better
1: get used to it now guys or catch up on your cockroach (laughs) tasty (laughs)
0: So it was during the time, during that time that you got a presenting job on BBC Radio 5 with a programme called More Nosh, Less Dosh before eventually becoming the resident chef on Good Morning. So that was interesting because you got to the top of the ladder and then had you always dreamt of broadcasting or were you looking for the next challenge?
1: Well, I got an interview with Time Out magazine and there was a colleague of mine that I used to play cricket with and he printed it in Time Out and it explained that I'd worked at Lord's Cricket Ground, that that wonderful story about my grandfather cooking at the White House and Geoffrey Dijon and fi- the, the final question what would you like to do next? I said well I, I'd really like to share my skills of cooking with with others and I thought we'd probably be aiming at a, uh, a TV series but Claire Shanker, a radio producer came along and said hello darling, it's a what do you do and we ended up doing uh more nosh less dosh and getting uh nominated for the glenn finnick and sony award which was absolutely thrilling and i'm glad i did it that way round, margie because by doing it that way round, what i mean is radio before tv the discipline of radio Is something else. Mm. She really taught me about how succinct one has to be, get the message across, clearly say what you want to say to get that message across. You know, pictures can say it all.
0: Yeah, you can't rely on the visual.
1: Can't rely. You know, you have to rely on words. And it was, uh, you know, I, I found it quite frustrating at times to say, no, you have to do that again. You have to do this again. This is what we have to do because I'm so you know, joyful. Yeah, look, la, 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 <laughs> la. They
0: can't see your jazz hands. <laughs> they can't see the jazz
1: hands. <laughs> 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 ho, 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 ho. And, <laughs> um, So uh, what a fantastic way to do it. Yes, I went down that route of uh, doing that and learning so, so much about radio, connecting with people. You know, more nosh, less dosh. Literally, that's what it was finding out about, uh, how to, you know, maximize your food with, mm. you don't need that much money. It's about how you shop, looking for bargains. I
0: feel like that would be very good today. If that program came back.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Sort of absolutely. It was really that. connected and looked at people, you know, mum or there's a father with a couple of uh, children single dad with a couple of children same thing with the mother and uh i think she had three children or was it four there was uh a nurse working odd hours and stuff like that how do you how do you fit in time for him or her to cook do you know that type of thing it yeah. was uh it was really really interesting and of course doing good morning Anna and nick was just unbelievable i remember driving up there and going in for the interview and speaking to the editor and uh the producer and they're saying um yeah we'd, we'd really like to have you on board and i was so excited i didn't know what to do we didn't have any mobile phones <laughs> so i had to drive back and <laughs> stop the car at a service station going yeah two two eight one three nine, you know do the little dialing thing. Say hi speak to my agent jerry said yeah they really liked it they really liked it we we're both screaming down the phone ah!
0: so So exciting
1: so exciting live too, (gasps) live tv being thrown in at the deep end and then being able to share with people at home like my mum shared with me say hey this is what we're cooking today with a smile it should be the most enjoyable thing that you do
0: oh so cool let's pause there and just talk about the fourth desert island dish and that's your favorite sandwich
1: favorite sandwich do you know i always looked forward to A salt beef sandwich. Mm. And one of the reasons is that my late father used to take us into Soho. uh, He had his barbers up there. And in those days, you could drive into Soho, park your car right outside the barbers. I think it was in Frith Street or something. Can you imagine that? And any of you Londoners, can you imagine driving your car into town and parking anywhere you want now? What pleasure would that give you? eh? Instead of looking, thinking, where's the, where's the parking attendant? Or where can I park my car? Or where can I find a meter? It was, I've got to say, uh, it was one of the greatest thrills just going into town, watching my dad go into the barbers and chat with all these people, these cult show, showbiz people. And then. We walk down the road, and we'd go off to the salt beef sandwich bar and have this – it was just amazing. The salt beef would be there, the rye bread, and they'd carve it. They'd slap a little bit of mustard on there if you wanted it, the pickled gherkin, and the way it was wrapped, and how
0: much meat
1: was in there. <laughs> Do you know? It looked like the most satisfying sandwich of all. And Yeah, the, uh, the
0: filling-to-bread ratio is very,
1: oh, very important. Oh, yeah. I mean, it really was <laughs> – And, uh, you know, it's changed now. You know, sandwiches have changed immensely. You know, when you go for a sandwich now and you're buying it in the shop because of health and safety, and absolutely right, but the butter's too hard, the meat's too chilled, or the, you know, egg is... Everything should be... Food is at its best when it's at room temperature. Mm, And, you know, that perhaps is why it's so wonderfully satisfying. And, of course, my first experience when I went to New York, I was only eight years old, and we went to the Carnegie Deli, and I had a salt beef sandwich there, which I could not finish. And I was almost crying because I could not finish. Yeah, do you sandwich. still think
0: about that bit you left behind?
1: Oh, <laughs> every day. I've, I've nightmares.
0: I do. No, Margie, don't laugh. I
1: don't.
0: <laughs> do. You know that? I think that has been the most popular sandwich choice on yeah. Desert Island Dishes. Is
1: it really? Yeah, uh, I love it. It's what it is, and it's kind of. I don't think there's enough of them around. Mm. Recently started doing one down at the old football ground. And the queues are just unbelievable.
0: Mm, that's, um, the next you know, big business opportunity. Well, it,
1: it is. It's a fantastic business venture. You've got to get it right. You know, health and safety again. You know, keeping it, almost carving it and keeping it fresh and lovely. But uh, what a sandwich. Yeah. yeah Salt but, beef sandwich. Woo. What sandwich. What a sandwich. But a rye. <laughs>
0: In 2000, you took over as the presenter of Ready Steady Cook, and it was really that that sort of catapulted you to become a true household name. Well, thank you. The program ran for 16 years with you at the helm, which is quite incredible. How did that job come about? Because Fern Britain was originally the presenter, wasn't
1: she? Yeah, well, Fern was the presenter, and I cooked on it for the first, uh, from 2000, sorry, from 94 to what, 99, I was a cook on it. And I loved it. And I still have the record of 24 unbeaten. Oh, which my is, goodness. Uh, yeah, I know. I think f- next, next was Phil Vickery with 19 and then James Martin with 17 unbeaten. But I,
0: I like how you got that in there. I,
1: <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Not much you get done in life. You ready, steady cook, champion? Yes. <laughs> and uh, I think everybody used to love when I used to dance around, my hat flopping from side to side. But it was uh, a complete thrill to be able to do it. Then I went off to America. And I had my own series in the Ainsley Harriet show on NBC. And so I kind of then broke away from it for a while and I really missed it. I missed again because I recently mentioned being in the kitchen, the camaraderie with the chefs, but it was exactly the same on ready steady cook being the presenter. I knew that when I went back, there was going to be even more of a connection with the chefs. Instead of just seeing them for that day, I'd be there all the time. And, uh, Anyway, and explaining how did it come about, I got a telephone call, uh, or my agent got a telephone call from Linda Clifford, who is the executive producer, saying we'd like Ainty to take over. And I think Fern was either, you know, whatever she was doing, she might be going to ITV or doing something else. But uh, still, you know, fantastic presenter, Fern Britton, love her, you know, and just her relaxed manner. She's just brilliant. Got the call, came back. I was in two minds, didn't know whether I was going back to America or not, but I was desperately missing my family here. The children were growing up, and, uh, you know, they just didn't needed me around family. So I thought, yeah, great, I'm going to do this. Started Ready Steady Cook in 2000, when I came back from America, and thought I'd do this for a couple of years. Well... Margie yeah. 10 years later <laughs> I was still doing it I was still there and loving every moment of it and it's I'm not surprised it's gone down in history as one of the most iconic cookery programs because I think it was real cooking in real time yeah
0: it really was and I think you and Ready Steady Cook I, I don't want to sort of overag it but I really feel like you taught a generation to cook you and the show were mm. in their cooking education which is kind of amazing isn't
1: well, it? I think it was Nadia recently she's got her program and she's
0: yeah, Na- Nadia
1: Hussain, Yeah, uh, Nadia, yeah. And uh, Nadia uh, was saying recently that it was her that, you know, Ready, Steady Cook inspired yeah. her completely. And, you know, she was so excited about meeting me and stuff like that. Because you do, we need someone to give us that little bit of, Philip, that little bit of belief, yeah. that little bit of thinking, I want to have a go and not frightened to fail. No. I think this is the biggest thing that we, we, we had prior to, uh, you know, generation before was people were just frightened to fail, yeah. frightened to get something wrong. What would they say? And uh, it's one of the reasons I've always been a bit wary of programs like The Apprentice and this. People are firing people all the time. And I, I just think you shouldn't do that. Yeah. Keep their spirits alive.
0: I think one of the amazing things was that you know you were using all kinds of different ingredients and it doesn't i think people freak out so much about looking at a recipe and if they don't have every single thing then they think they can't make it but you sort of showed you can make really amazing things yeah. with really quite random ingredients well, it
1: was simple really yeah. simple we taught about people how to get their basic larder ready you know the meals in minutes book that i bought out was a great uh, way for people to sort of say oh, I don't need that much. I can buy five or six things and put them into my, the, the drawer, the spices and stuff. And I, and I can cook a meal yeah. for me or my friend or my family very, very quickly. So it was a great grail, a great eye opener. And I think it's because it didn't take that long. Everyone just imagined everything would be ours.
0: Yeah. And and it was fun. And it was only actually in researching this interview that I came across something you said where you mentioned that you felt in some ways that you compromised yourself a bit in the role in that you didn't know if people knew that you were a chef.
1: Well, I think there was. If you think there's something that ran for that long, if you didn't see me cooking on the program, then suddenly I was presenting it. I remember Peter Bazalgette, who was the owner of the company at the time, said, this is definitely going to work. And I said, I said, why is that, Baz? And he said, because you have the ability to ask the chefs questions that you already know the answer to, but you're asking for the viewer at home. And he says, it's a great gift to have, make no mistake. Normally we all are so proud of what we do. You're telling them, well, the reason you're doing that and the reason you're doing this, but they were chefs in their own right. They had to explain it. It was part of their style. And I think that's part of their way of, you know, describing food and stuff. And that's important. Definitely. The individual characters. So, It did work and it was wonderful
0: that's what I was going to say. Like, obviously you were asking the questions, but it was also really obvious that you could have answered the questions mm, and you, mm. you, were, you were sort of always jumping in and doing the cooking and stuff.
1: like. Yeah. Well, you try to a little bit, yeah. but I then get in my ear from my uh, Amanda or whoever it was, my producer at the time saying, you know, let them, them. It, let them do it. <laughs> let them do it. I couldn't I just, like, get in there and do something, you know, after you've just sort of made, you know, loads of shows across the week, you just want to get involved in it, you know? Yeah. Especially it, if you
0: see that like a, contestant doing something badly might just be really tempting to just take over
1: oh yeah a little bit i was uh you know we didn't have that many uh, casualties along uh, along the way but because i think you people often say oh what's the worst thing that ever happened to the kitchen great thing about being a chef and understanding the science of food you know when things are turning you know yeah. when things are going wrong so before they go wrong earlier on i spoke about my mother and the sense of smell smells tells you everything that don't smell right Oh, that's catching. And you do something about it. It might need changing a pot or something like that, but you do something actively about it before it gets to the irretrievable.
0: Everything can be rectified unless you've obviously burnt it to a crisp. (laughs) It's the knowledge to know what to do. You
1: say that with such such authority.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish, and that's the dish you eat the most often.
1: I'd probably say sweet corn fritters Ooh. and that is a uh, combination of corn kernels with creamed sweet corn blended together put a little hint of uh spring onion in there if you like or scallion as my mum would say finely chopped and then it's corn flour flour and a little bit of uh, baking powder for that, that raising age just to puff them up a bit salt and pepper very simple and fried and then you know put them on kitchen paper to kind of extract any of that oil but the reason I say that I, I do that most often is because every other Saturday when my kids come around here for brunch, it has to be on the menu. That's what they want. Oh, and then I'm I have a surprised. couple of schoolmates because, as you said at the top, I still live in Wandsworth. I've got mates who I went to primary school with who live round the corner. That's what they come to the house for. They love, Ain't you going to do a brunch? <laughs> and they come down for that Saturday or Sunday brunch and we – go for it we have sweet corn fritters what else i'll do i'll do some little cherry tomatoes with a little sort of rosemary stuck in it and i'll do obviously the inevitable lovely sausages fresh sausages we've got some great butchers and down the road get some fantastic bacon and i just, just do loads wow. you know we just have this wonderful big buffet of uh brunch buffet brunch on, on a saturday and it's great and and, but I, I've got to say the sweet corn fritters. I'll have to give you the recipe for yeah. that one because
0: it's so funny that you should say that because I I was literally thinking about sweet corn fritters this morning because I love them and I haven't made them for ages. But I've never made them with the creamed corn in oh, them. Oh, creamed
1: sweet corn. Yeah, creamed sweet idea. corn and then corn. Mm. And then so you drain the, the the other corn corn kernels. Put that in there. Okay. And uh, I
0: need the recipe. Three
1: heat tables. Yes, that's, I'm going to give it to you because okay. the the kids go absolutely mad for it, and the next generation. You know, so it's kind of uh, something that's going to continue, I think, for a while.
0: And since then, you've done so many different programs. You've done one on street food. You've done the hugely popular Can't Cook, Won't Cook. You've written so many books and you've also launched your own range of, super, of food for the supermarket. You've now got um, a new TV on ITV, Ainsley's Caribbean Kitchen. I mean, that's a dream job right there, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. Uh, it's something that I've <laughs> wanted to do for a very, very long time. And people say, you know, where have you been? What have you been doing? Well, as you so rightly pointed out, you know, you're writing books. And not only that, it's been a while since I've done a book, actually, but you know, just having a, a business where you're having to kind of constantly be out there looking at different products all the mm. time to put into your range and come up with new exciting things, things that people are going to enjoy. You yeah. know, I, I, I want to bring to the table something. Yeah, it's convenient. We know that. But that things that people can genuinely enjoy, you know, to then be able to go off to the Caribbean and to experience you know, or, or to be asked to do 10 one-hour shows mm. Uh, that's amazing it, it was phenomenal i could never ever turn it down it was a busy time you know it was a tight schedule we had to get it done within a five-week period so it was <gasps> fully on yeah but uh and, we and, did and it
0: the first one is on jamaica isn't it Yes. and your parents are from jamaica yes your dad got a music scholarship to come over to the uk
1: he certainly did yeah. so have
0: you spent a lot of time over there not not enough okay
1: really i i uh, i i was saying before that i I went to Jamaica when I was eight and my very, very first time and met my grandfather mm. and uh, met many other relatives. My Uncle Harry, who I saw the other day at an, my uncle's funeral and I hadn't seen him since I was eight years old. It was like, Uncle Harry! <laughs> and it was just this wonderful man and we had the most wonderful hug. Anyway, um, it, it was so special to be able to just connect with people. But as I, I said, the, the idea of, Going back to the Caribbean, going back to Jamaica. Didn't see many relatives. They weren't around, you know, and those that were around, eighty odd years old, my uncle uh (laughs) you know, he's kind of kill me butter to talk to anybody. (laughs) I don't want to talk to anybody. He didn't want to be on TV. No, I'm tired. No, he 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 didn't want to be on TV at all. (laughs) And uh but great, great going back. You know, so often any of us when we return to our roots, it's normally to put our backside on a beach and sit down there soak up some sun and eat a bit of you know jerk chicken or curried goat and rice and stuff like that and drink some nice rum but to go and discover so much more about the island so much more about the people and it didn't stop there we start off in Jamaica then Trinidad, Tobago, Grenada, St. Lucia, Barbados, Dominica, Antigua. Oh. I mean it just it went on and on and on and everyone was different. You know, it's people say, Oh, it's the Caribbean. Well, it's like saying it's Europe. Everywhere in Europe is different. Well, everywhere in the Caribbean it yeah. is special. Every island is unique.
0: Oh God, you're making me so envious. Let us move on and talk about the sixth desert island yeah. dish. That's your go-to dinner party dish.
1: I think most of us do have a go-to dinner party dish. And mine is uh one that changes constantly because of the nature of work that i do of what i've just discovered of what i've just found out you know Mm. in terms of food ah this is new this is different and it'd be sad if we just stuck with something and we kind of think i ain't going away from that of course a traditional you know leg of lamb roasted on a sunday succulent absolutely beautiful baked fish the simplicity of just, you know, getting a whole fish and stuffing it and just baking it in the oven is really very, very special indeed. But And again, sharing. if you know, everything that I'm talking about here, it's very much about sharing. It's about being able to put a pot or a tray of food in the middle of the table and everybody pick. You know, I go to a fantastic restaurant, a Turkish restaurant in town called Rüya now because, you know, my mate Colin clutched the chef there. (laughs) So I'll get a few freebies, but more importantly, (laughs) it's a wonderful kind of Turkish-style restaurant. And that indicates sharing again. It's not like, that's yours, that's yours, that's yours. Everything's put on the table and we just share it. Oh, try this, try that. That's what it's all about for me. the best. You know, um, so uh, to, to narrow it down and say... It uh, could be my mum's red bean stew again. I could never capture what she was able to do in that pot. I, I get close to it. Yeah. I genuinely get close to it. But, but you, could,
0: but you could follow her exact recipe, and it just wouldn't be the same.
1: Oh, do you know what she said? A handful of this and a handful of that. <laughs> I said,
0: Mum, how much is a handful? She
1: said, a handful. Well, my hand's probably twice the size of hers, you know. <laughs> so I had to go. Maybe it's half a handful, you know. <laughs> quite get it stir it up but and, and there's something about the smell you know with those wonderful cloves and the and the fresh thyme and the scotch bonnet and everything else the way it cooked down very very slowly and the aromatic that comes from it is it's just lovely and that's what i look for that's what i look for when i cook what i want to share with people who are sitting around having food with me and uh, that's why i keep looking at my table i I'm just imagining in what would it be like what would i put on this table
0: oh that sounds lovely on Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So I wondered, what's your most treasured cookbook?
1: I'd probably say The Cookery Year, which was uh, something that uh, came from Regis Digest. Um, Regis Digest pulled it out in the early 70s, I believe.
0: Oh, yeah, and look, we've, we've got a copy here, and its I'm looking at it now, and it's gorgeous.
1: Well, do you know what? Mum had that book, and it was constantly open. There's probably pages in there that are a little bit sticky, splashed with oil and stuff. <laughs> like that. And it's a big book yeah. because it goes through, tells you all about different foods. It goes through the months of the year, which really makes you identify with seasonal produce what's available at that time and i think that's really where the uh, interest came that's why it was such a fascinating book it wasn't just a book filled with recipes it was the cookery year it's right across the year what you can get hold of what you can do a lot of it's fairly sort of simple but you know that's where it all stems from yeah and then you know you get to that point where you think i want to do a little bit more now I want to go ahead? I want to try something new, you know.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's a gorgeous choice. I can't believe it, but we're on to the seventh, final desert island dish, and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island.
1: Red pea stew. As I'm rowing to my island, thinking of my mama. Yes, her delicious red pea stew. Got to be that, isn't oh, it? Oh my
0: goodness, I don't I mean, want to say anything, I don't want to ruin the uh, oh, red beast stew. <laughs>
1: I'm going to my island, but
0: before I get there, just a bowl of my red pea stew, Ooh. Ainsley Harriet. Those were your desert island dishes oh you guys is that the best ending to an episode we've ever had what a complete superstar love him if you're listening and you haven't yet left a review for desert island dishes now is your chance it really is quick to do and it really helps other people to find out about the podcast i read all of them and they do genuinely brighten up my day so it could be your good deed of the day Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Instagram at Margie Nomura and you can visit the website desertislanddishes.co where this week I've shared Ainsley's sweet corn fritters recipe. It's a real goodie. I will see you next time. Bye.